He said, if you had asked me, do you love Jesus, I would not have known how to answer. It was Nashville, Tennessee over 20 years ago, and I had come down for a friend's ordination, and we were debating the importance of the doctrine of justification uh, by faith alone that we're reconciled to God simply because Christ's righteousness is credited to us just as our sin goes to him on the cross. And, and, and then, in the midst of this discussion, uh, as I was pontificating about the absolute importance of this thing as the, 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 the heart of the church, Luther called it the core ecclesia, uh, German professor of Greek and New Testament, Dr. Hans Beyer, said, when I was young, when I was young, I could have explained to you how I was justified by faith alone, but had you asked me if I love Jesus, I would not have known how to answer. It blew my mind. It's possible to know your theology, even to be able to articulate the theology of the gospel of Jesus. It's possible to have all of this religious knowledge and church experience and not love God. Do you love God? Well, Greg, I, I try to love him. That's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking about your religious performance. I'm asking whether the person Jesus moves you in any way, whether your heart is tender toward him, whether you have any affection for Jesus as your Savior. Do you, do you love him? Where are you with God? Is your relationship with God where you want it to be? Do you love God? Do you feel like there are other things that you love more than God that would make you willing to sin against God in order to get? Do you want to change if that's the case? Do you want to be filled with love for Jesus? Do you want to love God more, but you're just maybe not sure how when you can't change how you feel? If so, then I think Jesus may be speaking to you this morning as we turn to his words and his actions from the seventh chapter of the gospel according to St. Luke. This is verses 36 through 50. Follow along as I read. This is God's gospel. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair, kissing them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Please tell, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, 
so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What is Jesus speaking to us about in this passage? What's he trying to tell us? He's saying, first of all, that that this woman is showing you what it looks like to have a true and undiluted love for me. You want to know what love for Jesus looks like? Look at her. She is the model. I mean, look at what happens. You know, she's, she's a woman who was known as a sinner, and I think most of us can guess what that probably meant. It could have meant that she was a divorcee, though probably it meant that she sold herself to other people. And, and she's known as a sinner. Everybody knows who she is. Imagine what it would have been like for her to hear that she wants to go see Jesus because she's heard him, and she's, she's received his, his message, and she wants to see him. And, oh, he's in the Pharisee's house. It's like, there's no place she would rather go less than into a house of a Pharisee. I mean, one, they might not let her in. They might chase her out of there. They're gonna, she's going to walk in, and one thing, she's a woman, and then she's uh, this woman, that woman. I mean, some of them probably had known her in more ways than one. You know, and they're religious. They're self-righteous. They, they're disgusted by sinful people like this woman. And, and you can just imagine the stares, the comments, the nudging. Uh-huh. Look at, oh, ooh, uh. And then she comes in, and and she takes her perfume and pours it on Jesus. She, you know, the way that they, they, they sat around a meal is everybody faced the meal together in a circle, and they would be seated on their sides, reclining, with their feet curled behind them. And so she has gone in here and walked around behind Jesus and gotten on the floor and is weeping over her, his feet and pouring her perfume on him. Uh, it's an incredible picture of, of love. And, and this perfume, it says alabaster jar in our translation. That's not quite exactly right. What it would have most likely been is a, a very small jar uh, that was hung, or vial, that was hung around the neck that had in it this perfumed oil that was very, very strong scent with a tiny single hole in the top that was enough of a hole, enough of an opening to, the, for, to allow the odor to waft up in front of her face, but not enough to allow the oil to spill out 
because of surface tension. And this perfume would have cost her a lifetime of earnings. Uh, and this perfume would have been what enabled her to perform her particular career. Because you think about the ancient world before antibiotics, before antifungal agents, before refrigeration, before deodorant, before running water in the house, before hot water in the house, before, you know, human bodies can get really disgusting and unpleasant. They can smell, they can be covered with boils and open sores and, and, and before toothbrush and toothpaste, people's, you know, anybody older than 20 would have had a, a mouth filled with blackened teeth that are falling out, literally rotting inside the mouth. And this is what enabled her because it put this screen, this defensive shield of pretty smelling air between her and another person. This little perfume bottle enabled her career. It was her only leverage in life. And she, what we read that she does is she takes it and she breaks it in two and pours the perfume. A lifetime of wages. Her only leverage in life on the feet of Jesus. She's giving her, she's giving him her sin She's giving him all of her shame. She's giving him her lifetime of earnings. She is handing over to Jesus her career, her future, the way she feeds her kids, her only leverage in life and her only hope for the future. All of that wrapped up in one tiny vial and she snaps it in two and pours it on Jesus' feet and she's weeping in tears of joy because she has never been happier in her life. The Greek structure of the passage draws particular attention to her weeping and her wiping and her kissing. Those are the three things that the structure elevates as central. She's weeping, she's wiping, she's kissing. This is a woman so filled with love and affection and loyalty to Jesus, she is handing him everything undiluted love for Jesus Christ. And Simon... He doesn't have that love. And Jesus is going to explain why that's the case. He's, in fact, sitting there criticizing this woman in his heart. He's saying, if Jesus, you know, this is a sinful woman. And he's also criticizing Jesus for letting her do this, saying, oh, if Jesus were really a prophet, he would never let this happen because he'd know that this is a filthy, disgusting, horrible, awful woman to be shunned and cast out. And Jesus calls him out on it. In the ancient world, when you were invited into somebody's home, there were certain things that would be expected. First of all, they would give you water to wash your feet, or they would wash their feet, or they would have their servant wash your feet, because, you know, ancient roads had all sorts of animals on them dropping everything. It was disgusting. You definitely wanted your feet washed before you went to dinner. And, and, and you know, you would greet somebody with a kiss on the cheek or on the side. Uh, it, it was their form of a handshake. And, and then... And then if it were an honored guest, you might anoint them with oil. And Jesus said, when I came here, you gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no oil. You gave me no kiss. Simon, you have all this theology and all this training and all this respect, but there are no kisses. There's no weeping. There's no tears. There's no love. Jesus is saying this woman is what it looks like 
when you have a true love of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, if you want to love me like she loves me, something aesthetic has to happen inside of you. Something aesthetic has happened inside this woman. She's been uh, with a, a different man presumably every night, and every night she's maybe going to bed thinking, maybe this one will be the one who will truly love me, and in the morning she realizes he's gone. Maybe this one won't reject me. Maybe this one's arms, I'll, I'll find true love, but never, never, never. And morning after morning, she experiences a new level of rejection, of hopelessness, always being used, never being loved. And then she met Jesus. And he was the first man who ever clothed her with his eyes. She met Jesus, and he looked on her not to use her, but to serve her and to love her. He forgave her sin. He washed her and made her clean. He gave her a new life. She's finally found the first man who ever loved her for her sake. This is something aesthetic happening. Aesthetics is the science of, of beauty, of, 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 of something that is so precious and, and to be desired that, 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 that your very sense of goodness and beauty is wrapped up in it. Something has happened to her that is aesthetic. You know what it's like when a, when a young man gets his first car, you know, and it's, it's probably used, it's probably pretty beat, beat up, but to him, it is the most amazing thing on the planet. He takes it out, even though it's perfectly clean, he takes it out of the driveway, he washes the car, he then waxes the car, he then waxes the car a second time to get it extra waxed, he is putting shiny stuff on the wheels, he's, you know, got Q-tips getting the rims just perfect and shiny, he, he's putting all sorts of disgusting oil stuff on all the vinyl inside, he is cleaning the inside of the glass, I, he is vacuuming out everything. He is just wanting to spend all of his time on that car and all of his money on that car. He is getting, you know, the big fuzzy dice. He's getting the plush covers. He's getting the big, you know, chrome pipe for the back to make it look like it's a big car. He's getting maybe new wheels that are lifting it up. All of his money, all of his love, all of his affection. He wants to spend all of his money and all of his time on this car until what happens? He meets a girl. And then he starts spending all of his time with the girl. And then he starts spending all of his money on the girl. Why? What happened? Something aesthetic happened. He found something more beautiful than his car. Something warm and pretty and soft that smells nice that he really wants to spend time with. That's aesthetics. That's beauty, being awakened to something more beautiful. And that's what happened in this woman, is, is by receiving the grace of Jesus, she has seen Jesus as something so beautiful, she's willing to give away everything, her very future. Simon, Jesus is saying, something aesthetic has to happen inside of you, because right now, you are in the presence of the Son of God in all of his compassion and mercy and grace, and it's not doing anything anything at all in your heart. And that is a terrifying place to be. But how can you change your heart? How can you change what you find beautiful? How can you change what captures you, what captivates you? You can't choose what grabs hold of your heart. And so Jesus explains further. He's saying, if you want to love me, 
You're going to need to experience my grace on a deeper level. You're going to have to be forgiven more. You're going to have to be loved more. Before you're going to be able to love me, you're going to need to experience being loved by me. It's, it's the counterintuitive economics of the gospel. You need to be forgiven more in order to be able to love more. You see, we tend to reverse what Jesus is actually saying in this passage. You know, uh, when Jesus speaks to the woman, what we hear often is, you love me, therefore I forgive you. But it's the exact opposite of what Jesus says in the passage. Jesus is looking at the woman, and he's looking at Simon, and he's saying, I can tell which one of you has been forgiven much by how much love you have for me. And Simon, you have not been forgiven your sins. You don't love much. That's how I know. She has obviously been forgiven of a lot of sin because she is so filled with love for Jesus. It's the whole point of the parable. Jesus tells this parable about a money lender who lends two people huge amounts of money. A denarius was a lot of money. 50 denarius, 500 denarius. Yeah, it's denarii. You know, it's, so it's, it's kind of like the equivalent of one guy borrowed $100,000, and the other guy borrowed a million dollars, and they both found themselves out of work with no collateral, nothing. They're, they're up a very bad creek without a paddle, and there is no way. Maybe this guy could someday pay off $100,000, probably not a million dollars. Working at Wendy's, it's not, not ever going to happen. There's just no possible way. And so the moneylender forgives both of them the $100,000 and the million-dollar loan. Don't worry, I take care of it. That's grace. Jesus says, which, 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 which guy's going to love the money lender more? And Simon knows it's the one who has forgiven the bigger debt. It's the counterintuitive economics of the gospel. The more sin you're forgiven, the more deeply you understand God's grace, the more love you're going to have for Jesus. Being forgiven is actually what makes us ready to sacrifice to obey our God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what I say. You can't do what he says unless you love him. You can't love him unless he captures your heart by his love. It's how romance works. You know, love me has never made anybody love anybody, but I love you has made lots of people fall in love. Um, it's the way the heart works. It's the counterintuitive economics of the gospel. It's the opposite of what we would otherwise think. You know, I, I share very often, at least once a year or so, about, um, you know, the pastor's toolbox. You've heard this from me if you've been here any length of time. You know, as pastors, we, we want people to love God, and we want you to trust God in areas where you are tempted to not trust him. Uh, whether that's with your money, your finances, whether that's with your sexuality, whether that's with your career, whether that's with your marriage, whether that's with your kids, it, whatever it is where you are really tempted to take it into your own hands uh, and sin, those are areas where we really want you to learn to trust and obey uh, out of love for Jesus. And, and traditionally, pastors have had all sorts of tools that they can use to try to help get people to comply, at least outwardly, with God's will. 
you know, you can reach into the pastor's toolbox and you can, you can pull out the hammer. The hammer is guilt manipulation. You know, you can hammer away at people. You're such, this is a horrible sin. Don't do that. It'd be so evil, so disgusting. Now, what do people think? You know, you, you can hammer at somebody and get them through guilt manipulation to outwardly comply. But is that going to make them love Jesus? No. And Jesus reaches in and takes away the hammer and says, you can't manipulate them by guilt. Their guilt has been atoned for. The Lord Jesus has paid for it, paid for it all fully, finally, and forever. So the gospel takes away the hammer of guilt manipulation, but then you can reach in to the pastor's toolbox and see the screwdriver. The screwdriver is shame. Shame will make people do things that, that, that guilt alone will never do because shame says, guilt says what I'm doing is bad. Shame says I am bad as a person. I'm defective. I messed up. Uh, if you really knew what's inside of me, you'd hate me. Uh, you know, shame, you could take that screwdriver and just twist it and get people to do things. There are entire cultures that are built upon guilt and sh upon shame and, and fear of avoiding shame. Um, yet Jesus says in Hebrews, I am not ashamed to call you my brothers. If Jesus has clothed you with his righteousness and he says he's not ashamed of you, then he's taken away the screwdriver. And yet you look again into the pastor's, you know, toolbox, and, and you've got the pliers. That's the fear of punishment. You know, you're going to go to hell if you do that. Uh, but Jesus said, no, actually, I went to hell on the cross so that you won't have to give me those pliers. You can't use that to manipulate people. And so then what's left is, well, you've got the sandpaper. That's the, the hope of a future reward. Uh, you know, it'll look good later. Um, and yet Jesus says, your rewards have already been secured you are already an heir. And so he takes away the sandpaper, and eventually I'm looking down into the pastor's toolbox, and there's only one tool left, and it's the gospel of Jesus who dies for sinners because he loves you. Think of it as the Swiss Army knife of the pastor's toolbox because it's the one thing, the one tool that can do everything. You know, the path to loving God is through being loved by God. It's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus, uh, 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 who loves us. Uh, I'll tell you a story. Um, true story. British radio host Sam uh, Darliston found a, a fuzzy surprise one day when he got home from the, uh, from the grocery store and opened up a bag of broccoli because inside it was a little tiny fuzzy caterpillar. And some of you would be grossed out. But instead of evicting his new furry friend or killing his friend, he decided to take care of it. And it turned out that being an ad hoc caterpillar caretaker was, was just the hobby he needed during the London lockdown. Uh, so he told a reporter, I, I did my research initially online and discovered the exact type of caterpillar that this was and the type of butterfly that it was going to become. And uh, then I decided to build him a little home in my living room uh, with all the broccoli he wanted, and Darliston named his caterpillar Cedric and was planning on maintaining a habitat for one until another trip to the same store for replacement broccoli yielded more caterpillars. Um, the replacement had five little fuzzy caterpillars in the bag. And then his housemate brought a bag and it had yet another one, and so overnight he had seven caterpillars. 
over a series of tweets he conveyed to his audience how each of them eventually became a chrysalis and then formed cocoons, only to eventually break out and become butterflies and fly away. He said, I felt a tiny bit sad watching them spread their wings, but overall the feeling was one of happiness. I'm just happy at least one of us gets to go out during the London lockdown. Now, here's my question. If a British guy named Sam has that much love for the caterpillars that were in his broccoli, obviously organic broccoli, how can you think God has less love for you who bear his image, for you who have been forgiven of, of, of your sin and brought into his own family? How, how can you doubt his eagerness to take care of you, to provide for you in the midst of hardship that this God has loved you? He sees you, obviously having lost your way from the broccoli farm. He sees you so fragile and so small and yet so much more precious than a caterpillar. That's the heart of Jesus toward us, a heart of compassion that looks upon this woman and has compassion on her, who looks upon her and loves her and covers her sin and forgives her. That's God's love for you, his total loyalty to you who believe. His compassion to you, not in spite of your sin, but because of your sin. That's why you need his compassion. He knows you by name. Are you receiving that? Is it doing anything at all inside of you? you know, imagine, if you will, a church filled with people like this sinful woman at the feet of Jesus. A church of people who have suffered, sometimes from their own weaknesses, people who have had affairs, people who have wrecked their marriages, people who have cheated on their taxes or lived years with bitterness or resentment, people who have had abortions, or people who have been filled with self-righteous anger at people who have had abortions, people who have been to jail, people with addictions to gambling or food or drugs or alcohol or pornography, people with mental illnesses, people who have failed God, people who, who have things about them that they can't change and will never change, even if it, it, no matter how much they want it. People who have failed humanity and who know what it's like to carry around shame. And now imagine what it looks like when Jesus loves them, every one of them, when he washes you and makes you clean and forgives you for everything, when he knows your potential to fail him again and he still says to you, I, I love you and nothing will ever take any of you away from me, and, and I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. A God who sees you all the way down and still wants to be in relationship with you. Picture the smile on the face of your heavenly Father as he delights in you. Imagine what love that kind of church would have. Friends, I've heard so many of your stories, and you are that church. You are that church. There's something special in you because you know your sin, and you've seen Jesus' grace. You've tasted it. You've experienced the welcome of Jesus. You've heard him say what he said to this woman, your sins are forgiven. Some of you are saying, Greg, I wish I was there, but my heart is still so hard. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus.
I have one last story. We've got a photo. Could we get that photo up? It's a black and white photo of um, Viola Liuzzo. Viola was 39 years old, a mother raising five young children. On Sunday, March 7th of 1965, she watched on the television news as Alabama state troopers advanced on 600 unarmed marchers atop the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, clubbing and whipping them, fracturing bones, gashing heads. 17 people were hospitalized on the day that later became known as Bloody Sunday. Liuzzo, in her living room, was horrified by the images on her television. A second march took place two days later, after which a minister from Massachusetts was murdered. After that happened, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called for help for white people, for people of different religious backgrounds, anyone who cared to please come and join the march. On March 16th, just a week after she had watched on television, Liuzzo called her husband to, help, to tell him that she would be driving to Selma, Alabama. She left her children in the care of family and friends and she volunteered for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. She worked day and night delivering aid to various locations, welcoming and recruiting volunteers, transporting volunteers and marchers to and from airports, bus terminals, train stations, for which she volunteered the use of her 1963 Oldsmobile. Liuzzo was assisted by Leroy Moten, a young 19-year-old black man. They continued shuttling marchers and volunteers from Montgomery back to Selma in her car. Liuzzo had been warned by a veteran of, of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference that it was a dangerous thing and that she should not go back to Montgomery. Montgomery is not safe. As they were driving along Route 80, a car tried to force them off the road. After dropping off passengers in Selma, she and Moten headed back to Montgomery. And when Liuzzo stopped at a red light, a car with four members of the local Ku Klux Klan pulled up alongside her. When they saw a white woman and a black man in an automobile together, they followed Liuzzo, and she tried to outrun them. But they overtook her Oldsmobile and shot directly into the car twice. Viola took a bullet to her head, and she passed away. The, veer, the car veered into a ditch, and it crashed into a fence. The Klansmen pulled over and got out. They reached the car to check the victims, and they saw both of them motionless and covered in blood. Knowing them to be dead, they left them there, and they drove away. Only while young Moten was covered with blood, the bullets had actually missed him. He'd lain motionless and waited Leroy Moten was rescued from death because he was covered in the blood of Viola Liuzzo, the white woman who sacrificed her own life so that others could live. It's what it takes to change an evil reality. It's what it took to bring justice at that point. White people being willing to die for black people. But it's a lesson that was learned from Jesus. There is a reason we resonate so powerfully with the thought that one person's blood could cover another person and thereby bring them from death to life. 
because that is exactly what Jesus did for us. He is the one who looked upon our evil reality and saw our own guilt and our own complicity and all of it. And nevertheless, he came into our world. He jumped down into our world of cruelty and hate and sin and injustice and rebellion, and he moved close to the wicked and the ungrateful. He forgave the sins of a sinful woman who was there weeping at, her, at his feet. He changed her affections and gave her love for him and new life as, as one of his people. He moved close to us and then went to the cross and there took everything hell had to throw at him. And if you follow Jesus, his blood covers you and you will have life because his blood covers you. You're going to live forever. Friends, look at Jesus. Let's pray.